Good evening. I, so am I a little hot? Can you turn me down just a little bit? My, my voice is, is being uncooperative tonight, so you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to work through it with some halls. So, all right. Hey, so let's do this to, to, to get us moving in the right direction. What, what are some things in your life, either now or at some point in your past, you had to get ready for? So just a time where you thought, I need to be ready. What was, what was it? Raise your hand, and I'm walking around. Sabre. Open house today, right? Yeah. Scotty? First day of school, especially for teachers. Job interview. Having children. We should just pause for that, right? Having children. Not just child, but children, right? I know. Marcus. Graduating from college. Sally. Getting married. Yes. Anthony. Deploying. And is it your birthday today? All right. Little Starbucks. Little Starbucks for Anthony. The wonders of Facebook. I'm not going to sing to you, though, because that wouldn't be a gift. I know. Somebody else. Something you had to be ready for. Going to college. Either parent or child. Right? All right. Being a best man, which you are all the time, Jamal. Can we just say that? All right. Somebody else. Something Something you got to be ready for. Moving. Chrissy. Heaven. Wow. She set me up. I should just stop right there, right, and go right into my nose. Anybody over here? Does see any hands go up? Something you need to be ready for? Brad? Ready for worship. All the way in the back. Returning back to work, especially coming back from vacation, right? You got to, right? We understand throughout our lives there's all kinds of experiences where we, we have this thought of, I need to be ready, right? It's, it's from, our, from, from being young until we're in our most senior seasons of life, this feeling of needing to be ready is never going to go away. Listen to this story. They opened their doors on July 13th of 1937. Vernon Rudolph bought a secret yeast-raised donut recipe from a New Orleans French chef, rented a building in what is now historic Old Salem in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and began selling Krispy Kreme donuts. And everybody said, come on, come on. That'll bring the Pentecostal out of everybody. Maybe I'll just use that. If I feel like that you're not responding as good as I'm preaching, I'll just stop and say Krispy Kreme, right? All right. The delicious scent of cooking donuts drifted into the streets and passers-by stopped to ask if they could buy hot donuts. See, he just bought this building and was going to sell them in this one grocery store, but the smell of it, right? People said, hey, can I buy some right here? So listen to what Vernon Davis does. He cuts a hole in an outside wall and started selling hot original glazed donuts directly to customers on the sidewalk. This is how it started, 1937. And in 1992... If you thought Krispy Kreme made you shout, here you come. And in 1992, the hot sign was born. Yeah. So we're approaching the 79th anniversary of something wonderful. So after the service tonight, I kid you not, there are Krispy Kreme donuts for you in the cafe, and they will be hot and ready, right? I know, you should clap for that. So if you're on a diet, right, 
They're under grace tonight. You're under grace for a break. Have a donut. Just You can just eat one instead of the two. That Right? Okay, all right. Or three or four. In fact, I was thinking about, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and on the Sundays that we did communion, they couldn't throw away anything that had been blessed, right? So they used real wine, and they used these little wafers, and whoever was attending the communion with the rector would have to eat all of the remaining wafers, and they would have to drink the rest of the wine. And so I thought, you know, we should follow that practice tonight, right? The donuts cannot be thrown away. So whoever's here at the end, yeah, you, we're going to eat them until they're done. Okay, all right. So, so why are we talking about donuts and getting ready as we launch this series the whole summer called Hot Sign Your Soul? It, it's because Jesus had a lot to say about being ready for something. That This idea, and in fact, I would suggest to you that by God's design, he made the human experience one of this continual feeling at times of needing to be ready because he wants us to connect that feeling with the most important moment in our existence where he expects us to be ready. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to start reading in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Verse 26. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people. That's you and me. That's every person. We'll judge all people according to their deeds. This word deeds in the Greek is the word praxis. It's the name that we have given to our discipleship model that we're going to introduce to you tonight. For some of you, it'll be a little bit of review, and then we're going to get to some new stuff at the end that talks about the decision that we have to make in light of this invitation that Christ gives to us. It's also the name for our school of leadership that we launched last year. We've got nine applicants. Come on. Uh, I know it's good. You can clap. They had, if, you're, if you apply for Praxis 9, raise your hand. Where are you? They had all their interviews last night and this morning. So, right, it's called Praxis because it's this idea of deeds. And, and, it's, and it's deeds in the sense of not your best moment or your worst moment. This word in the Greek means that which characterizes you. So you don't want people to make decisions about you based on your worst day. And, and it's not fair for them to make decisions about you even on your best day, right? Because that can be overwhelming for us too because we're always trying to live up to an expectation that maybe we can't meet. God does the same thing for us. He's, he's going to judge us based on what characterizes us, who we were in this life, praxis. Matthew 16, 24 to 26 He's not talking about outward things. He's talking about inward things. Listen to what he says. Verse 24. If you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will 
save it. He, he's talking about who you are on the inside. Peter picks up on this. In fact, I think when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Peter to write 1 Peter, that he was thinking about this conversation that he had with Jesus in Matthew 16. It's 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. It says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty or fancy hairstyles or expensive jewelry or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within. That word within here in the original language is three words. It's kruptos anthropos cardia. It's the hidden person of the heart. Peter is saying when God looks at us, he's looking at what's on the inside. We live in a world that inundates us with, with this idea of the outside. And we're, he's not saying don't pay any attention to outside or if, 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 if that's of value to you, that, that, that that's broken. He's saying, but don't overvalue it. He's saying that if you overvalue who you are on the outside at the expense of what's on the inside, then your life is sideways. He measures what's within. Now listen to this. Spiritual activities mature the character of the soul. Spiritual activities mature the character of the soul. The, the Bible uses this word soul. It's been used a lot in the verses that we've read so far tonight. It's talking about the part of you that makes you you. It's the part of you that makes you different from every other person. It's the eternal part of who you are, right? This part of who we are, it's just transportation that houses the part of us that really matters, the hidden person of the heart, the kruptos anthropos cardia. And that's the part that God is going to look at when we stand before him, is how much is this part on the inside, does it look like who Jesus is so we have a model. Let me read you these thoughts. If I accept one invitation, then I must obey six commands. And to obey six commands, I must walk in 12 pathways. And when I walk in 12 pathways, I become 24 virtues. If you've been a part of us for any amount of time, you've heard that statement or something like it many times. If I accept the one, I've got to obey the six. And to obey the six, I've got to walk in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. There are four distinct parts to this model or what we can call a map to discipleship, the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. Here's another way to describe how we see discipleship. When Jesus invites me to be his disciple, he expects me to obey his commands. I obey those commands by walking in spiritual pathways. And when I walk in those pathways, I become a virtuous person, the ultimate measure of my progress as a disciple. When you go to a job interview, you should pay attention to what you look like on the outside. You with me? When you're going to a wedding, especially if you're the bride and the groom. If you've ever been a bride or a groom, you said this at least once to somebody. How do I look? Right? The groom, e even if he has this persona of not caring at some point, I'm telling you, because I've done a lot of weddings, they turn to their best man at least once and say, how do I look? Where the bride gets ready, there's mirrors everywhere. Good gracious, they don't even need any bridesmaids. They're just mirrors everywhere. Because they want to know, how do I look? This book is a mirror. 
And it's been given to us for many reasons, but one is for us to stand in front of it throughout our lives because it helps us to see a part of us that no earthly mirror can show us. It's the part that God is going to look at one day, and we're going to have to give an account. And he says to you, and he says to me, be ready. Like every other moment in your life where being ready mattered to you, this one matters the most. And as a church, we have a responsibility to help you get there. So I've got some slides that we're going to throw up. The first one is this. It's called the invitation. Now, if, you, if I move faster than you would prefer if you're a note taker uh, through version, uh, it populates for you on there. And then also on our website, all the notes every weekend are always up. So this is the invitation. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 11.1. Now, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And it simply says, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Other translations render it, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to you about this invitation is this invitation is impossible to fulfill if you're not a part of a community. Because if you're by yourself, there's no one that you can turn to to say, follow me as I follow Christ. If you're by yourself, there's no one for you to follow as they follow Christ. You don't have to be a part of a community to go to heaven. That's based on your vow of devotion to Christ. But if you're going to become the person that God created you to be, you cannot become that person in isolation. You must have a group of people. I think it's not an accident. right? Paul had some letters that he wrote to individuals. He's got some letters that he wrote to churches. It's not a coincidence that this verse falls into a letter that's written to a church because the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to tell us, you cannot accept this invitation without a group of people around you. All of us should have people that we're looking to and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Not because I'm perfect, not because I don't make mistakes, but because all of us should have a sense of, I want to help other people be discipled as other people are helping me be discipled. And that should never change for you throughout your life. It's the invitation. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ that is sincere, heaven is promised to you. It's promised to you. And then Jesus says to you, are you ready to become my disciple? Are you ready to go on a journey of transformation and change? Let's get ready for the moment where we stand before the Father and you have to give an account for your character. The invitation. Let's go to the next one. The commands. When I accept this invitation that Jesus gives to me, like many of you have accepted this invitation that Jesus has given to you, to become his disciple, he expects you to obey his commands. Now, I believe that there are six foundational commands to everything that Jesus taught. In fact, if you break down the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the beginning of Acts, where we have some direct commands from Christ himself, everything that he says to us can connect back to one of these six. The first one is follow Jesus. The next one is love God, love people. Be perfect, go everywhere, and receive power. These are verses that reference those. If you want to check those out, follow Jesus is about devotion to Christ. See, when I make a vow of devotion to Christ and heaven is promised to me, there is a measure of devotion in my heart for Jesus. But that feeling of devotion should increase over time. Marriage is a wonderful thing. And there's a measure of devotion that a married couple experiences when they get married. 
But if that marriage is healthy, if they begin to do the work of marriage throughout their life, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that sense of devotion gets deeper and stronger over time. It's the same as our walk with Christ. It starts with devotion, but that sense of devotion should increase throughout our life. The second one, this idea of loving God, it's about intimacy with God. Do you wake up every day having a sense that God is your best and closest friend? Do you feel close to him? Is there, is there a sense of emotional connection with your heavenly father? When you step into this place of making a vow of devotion to Christ and your, your, your relationship with God is restored, there's a sense of intimacy, there's a sense of closeness that you have. But that sense of closeness should get deeper and stronger throughout your life. you got to love people. And the people that are lovable, they don't count. Krispy Kreme. Man. The people that are lovable, they don't, Jesus said, hey, if you're loving the people that are easy to love and love you back, you're not getting any credit for that. None. you got to love people. It's about caring for others. It's not just about doing it because you're supposed to. I think Jesus really expects us to have a feeling of affection for people that are our enemies. I think he expects us to have a sense of, of compassion for people that we don't like. Isn't it fascinating that when Jesus is on the cross and he's being mistreated the way that he is, that you see it through the story of the scriptures. He loves those people. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, that's why it's called discipleship. It's a journey of change and transformation that our humanity feels like it's pulling us this way and the Holy Spirit inside of us is pulling us that way and we live in this healthy tension and something inside of us should say, I'm not going to give in, I'm going to keep moving forward. Be perfect. Matthew 5.48, we call this having a Matthew 5.48 priority. It's about a third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount 5, 6, and 7. End of 5, Jesus just stops and looks at the crowd and says, be perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. Now he knows we're not ever going to be perfect. What's he saying? He's saying get ready. Because there's going to be a day where you stand before the Father. And he's going to be looking into the hidden person of the heart. What is he going to find? I'm not ever, if this is perfection here, which is Jesus, I'm somewhere in Hampton, right? But I'm just going to stand here just for the sake of the illustration, right? I know that I'm not ever going to get there, but next year I should be a little closer. Ten years from now I should be a little farther. We, we call it growing beyond recognition. 20 years from now, you should be looking at who you are today, and other people who know you should be looking at who you are today and go, what happened to you? What happened to you? It's happened to people in this church. I was getting emotional as I was praying about this part of the service. I haven't talked to them, but think about Jen and Cameron Muro, who oversee all of our nursery operations here. They were not the same people they are today when they started coming here years ago. And if you know them, they talk about it. 
Their lives have changed. Scotty and Saber Moriarty, they, it was just, they were the couple that was talking about having open house. When they started coming here, they're one of our leads for our, our Saturday Life team one weekend. And they, we had a big meeting with all the leads as we were trying to figure out this new building this week at our house. And they started talking about the, their lives have changed. They're not the same people they were years ago. Why? Because they've given themselves to this praxis, this idea of I want my life to be on a journey of transformation. Courage for change. Go everywhere. The Great Commission is about diligence and mission. You have a mission. God put you on this earth for a purpose. He has something that you are supposed to do. Now what we do is secondary to who we become, but what we do matters. The work that he has put into our hand, there should be something inside of us that says, I want to get busy with my divine purpose. And the last one is receive power. About being equipped by the Holy Spirit. You can't do any of this without the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can do some of it through human effort. You'll make some accomplishment through just gritting it out. But you're never going to make the progress you're supposed to make until something inside of you begins to learn to lean into the power of God that he breathed into you when you made a vow of devotion to Christ. That's why what we say here at City Life is that when someone makes a vow of devotion to Christ for the first time, we say it's, they, it's when they take their first spiritual breath. The Holy Spirit comes alive in you. And he comes alive in you for many reasons. But one, it is the engine of your personal journey of discipleship. There is an invitation. These are the commands that he expects us to give our lives to. Let's go to the pathways. This is where it gets practical, right here. Scripture, worship, prayer, fasting, relationship, reaching, gathering, accountability, service, generosity, stewardship, and rest. There's red and yellow and green up there because that's how you're supposed to evaluate yourself. You should have these 12 written down somewhere on a piece of paper in your Bible. If your Bible is a device, then you should have something where you've written these out in your notes. Or maybe use Evernote, maybe use version, And you've got these three these 12 in a column, and then, let's do it this way. you got 12 in a column, then you've got red and yellow and green. And you should put an X next to each one that correlates to that practice in your life. So let's talk about Scripture. Maybe you haven't read the Bible in three months. Is that red, yellow, or green? Yeah, it's red, right? It means you've stopped. It means that that pathway is not present in your life. But, but let's say you say, you know what, I... I'm getting better. I read it I read it once a week now, right? You moved it to yellow. And then eventually you're going to get to a place where you say, I, I read it more often than I don't. Let's say five, six out of seven days a week, then that's green, right? You can do that for every pathway. And what's great about this way of assessing is that your standards for red and yellow and green change as you grow and mature. Ten years from now, what green looks like for prayer for you should be different than what it looks like today. Your whole life, you should be looking at these things. You know why? Because we're supposed to be ready. He says, there's going to come a time where it's just you and God. Were you working throughout your life to be ready? Grace makes all of this possible. But grace is not permission to stop trying. Grace makes all of your efforts fruitful. 
Let me just point out two, because we're going to talk about these two a lot this summer. One is service. Just during the worship service, I felt like God spoke this to me. This is what he said. He said, Fred, when you're providing, either through service or giving, when it's not your turn to either give or serve, then you're partaking. Which means that the people in the blue shirts tonight, they're providing. You tracking with me? They're providing. The people that are working in the nursery, they're providing. People that gave in the offering, they're providing. Well, next week, those people in the blue shirts, different people are going to have those blue shirts on. So they're going to show up for service, right? At 445, not 515. Krispy Kreme. All right. They're going to show up for service. They're not going to have a blue shirt on. They're not providing that weekend. You know what they're doing? They're partaking. They're receiving from the work that other people are providing. This is what God was speaking to me just during worship. If you never provide, your partaking is only taking. If you are never providing, your partaking just becomes taking. It's powerful, isn't it? There's times in our life where we provide, and then there's times in our lives where we partake. If you call this your church home, and you don't serve ever to make our weekend services happen, it's time for you to start providing so that your being here becomes partaking. If you call this your church home and you don't give at all in any way, it's time to start providing so that when you receive it becomes partaking. If I never provide what I'm saying to other people, this is what I'm saying to other people, I want you to make sacrifices so that I can benefit from all of this, but I'm not willing to make those sacrifices for you. And that could never be a part of the culture of in, any community. It becomes out of balance. And so we have a responsibility as a church to press you into these pathways because they change the community of the church and they change you. They change you. You can leave some of these pathways out, but if you leave some of these pathways out, then the impact to the character of your soul will be less than it should be. Because spiritual activity matures the character of the soul. Red and yellow and green. If you've never done that, I hope you do it this week. That you write those down. And you're going to have X's all on your paper. And make a decision. I'm going to pick a couple of reds and get them yellow. I'm going to pick a couple of yellows and make them green. And the ones that are already green, I'm not going to lose ground. All right, let's look at the virtues. When I accept the one, I have to obey the six. And to obey the six, I walk in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. If we were painting and words were color, this would be the face of Jesus on our screen. This is who Jesus is on the inside. These are from five specific texts in the Bible that are referred to by Dr. George Wood, a favorite pastor and theologian of mine. He calls these the five great growth lists. It's Matthew 5, 3 through 10, Romans 12, 9 through 21, and 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Galatians 5, 2 through 23, and 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Again, those notes are online. You can find it there. And when you take out the overlap, 
right? Because a lot of virtues are repeated in each, and then we've changed some of the language to modernize it. We think that you end up with these 24 virtues. Authentic, content, hospitable, truthful, persevering, wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, believing, forgiving, and self-control. Who doesn't want to be described by those words? Right? When, when you're left to yourself and you're thinking about the person that you want to become, I hope these 24 words describe that person. Can we just agree? These are the people that we want to be around. And this is the person other people want us to be when we're around them. And it takes work. It's not a coincidence that many of Jesus' metaphors throughout the teaching of the Gospels are agricultural in nature. Because if you have ever gardened, it's hard work. We did a message not too long ago where we talked about in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he began to announce what he was going to do, and he did it from a fishing boat, not a pleasure boat. He did it from a working vessel because there's effort to this journey as devoted followers of Christ. The grace makes my effort possible. These 24. See, when I give myself to the activities of those 12 pathways, you create an environment in your life that is conducive to this fruit. If you want to grow something, you've got to create an environment that's healthy for growth. If you want your marriage to grow, you've got to create a healthy environment. If you want your children to be raised and become healthy, productive, contributing members of society and lovers of God, guess what? You've got to create a healthy environment for that to happen. If churches want people to go on this journey of transformation, they have to create a healthy environment. We understand it in so many areas of life. Part of you, you don't like your job because the people that are responsible there do a terrible job of creating a healthy environment. We understand it in this natural world. It's the same in our spiritual life. We have to create a healthy environment for virtues to be able to flourish. That's why we preached a few weeks ago, for two weeks in a row, about the power of displacement. If you've got stuff in your life that you don't like, Stop spending so much time focusing on the part that's broken and start spending and focusing some time on those pathways because as you do them, virtue begins to grow and begins to displace things that don't belong there. All right, we can go back to the other slide. So that's our model. We're going to be spending the summer talking about these pathways Sharon Thomas, who was on the screen earlier, she's going to do a week on discipleship. Steve Ruggiero is going to do a week on discipleship. Pastor David's doing a couple of weeks on discipleship. And then I'm going to be spending the rest of the summer breaking down these pathways individually. So Proverbs 25, verse 2. I'm not going to talk for the next four days. Don't, don't call me. Are you there? Text, text. I love this verse, David referenced, you know, we pick a different reading plan every year, reading through the Bible. We're on the chronological plan. 
and, and uh, probably several weeks ago, we, we were in Proverbs. Don't you love how Ecclesiastes comes after Proverbs in our Bible? You know why that is? Because if you don't live by the former, you're going to end up as the latter. Proverbs 25.2. Now I'm going to read out of four different translations. I'm going to start with the New Living Translation, which is one of my favorites. But no one translation gets all the verses right. Proverbs 25.2. It is God's privilege to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. Let me read out of the New American Standard. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. That's close. Holman Christian Standard Bible. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate a matter. That's even better. But I think the King James hits the nail right on the head. King James says it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings to search out a matter. See, the mistake we make is assuming that the first thing has to be the same as the second thing. The mistake we make is that the, the first matter has to be the same as the second matter. Now, can it be? Sure, it can be. But if you only look at the verse that way, you miss this broader truth, I think, that God is trying to give us. It's the same thing that happens with 1 Peter chapter 3, where we read about the, the hidden person of the heart. Now, the application of that verse, it, the reason why Peter was writing, he was writing to women in the early church, but that's the application. That's not the principle. If you only see the application as the principle, you'll look at it and say, that doesn't relate to me, when there's something in there for you. The application for 1 Peter 3, when he wrote it, was for women. But the principle is, be more concerned for the inside than the outside. That's for everybody. If you see these things and matters as the, as the same thing, this is what you think. And proverb really doesn't relate to me because I'm probably not ever going to be a king. I'm probably not going to ever rule over a kingdom. But I don't think the second thing and the second matter is supposed to be the same as the first thing and the first matter. And when you separate those things, something happens in our understanding of this text. Part one is a reminder that God is perfect and that we are not. And even though his nature is to reveal himself, there will always be the feeling of concealment because there is a mystery between divinity and humanity. That's why Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that this life is, is like looking through a clouded glass. We, we kind of make some things out, but it's just not clear. It's like when you're driving and the pouring down rain, right? It's just, it's fuzzy and blurry. Paul says, one day we will know just as we are fully known. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be any questions. There's only going to be answers. But that's not ever going to happen here. See, this one proverb talks about God concealing. But you have to understand the Bible in light of itself. The whole rest of the Bible says just the opposite. It says that God reveals himself. The nature of God is revelation. What this proverb is saying is that his revelation is so pure and it's so perfect that even when it's staring me in the face, it feels like he's hiding something, but he's not the one that's doing the hiding. It's our humanity that's having a hard time understanding. The second part is about a king, which is especially important in the season we are now in our country. Part two is a reminder of the importance of governments to be characterized by two elements, 
that it serves the people and exists in a state of transparency. See, the king's privilege is to discover, to search out, to investigate. The government's responsibility is to continue to work to find what is better for the people that they exist to serve. And when you begin to look at these two verses this way, something happens. We begin to realize that there's a third part to this verse that God leaves out because that's the part for you and me that we're supposed to begin to consider. Listen to this word glory. Right, some people call it privilege. I mean, some translations call it privilege. Some call it glory. But in the Hebrew, it literally means honor and dignity and reputation. It sounds a lot like praxis, doesn't it? So you could read into this verse that what characterizes God or what characterizes the king. That's what this word glory means here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. How about all those standardized tests that we've had to take? You had to be ready for those, right? SATs. Maybe some of you have taken LSATs or MCATs or some other kind of test that makes you break into a sweat at the thought of it, right? But you want to be ready for that test when you take it. And in some of those tests, there are patterns that you're supposed to understand. You ever notice that? In, in some of those tests, in some of those tests, they give you a series of numbers. And then there's a fill in the blank, and you're supposed to pick which number comes next. And if you're like me, you're like, how the heck am I supposed to know? Which is why I never did great on those tests. Sometimes they're words, right? It's this word, then there's that word, and this word, and you're supposed to pick. Even when they give you words to pick from, I'm thinking none of these seem to fit for me. It's a sequence that you're supposed to fill in the gap. See, I think this proverb in Proverbs 25 is one of those tests for us. I think God is saying, this is what I expect of myself and the authority that I have. And this is what I expect of governments and the authority that they have. And then the verse that's not there, which you can find through your journey with the Holy Spirit, is you asking yourself the question, God, what do you expect of me with the authority that I have? And if you want to understand what God expects of you with the authority that he's given you, you don't have to go any farther than back to Matthew chapter 16. Because the authority that God gives to you and the authority that God gives to me, he gives it to me so that I can choose to surrender to him. It's so that I am willing to lay down my life and take up my cross and follow him and live every day for the rest of my life on this journey of praxis, this journey of discipleship. So you might say, well, Fred, I don't really see myself as, a, as having sovereignty or having authority. Don't buy into that lie that the devil wants you to believe. At the very least, you have authority over your own life. God has given you a will to choose, not to be driven by your emotion, not to be driven by your circumstance, not to be driven by your past, but he's given you a will so that you can stand, so that you can choose, so that you can exercise the authority that he's given to you. Your heart is like a garden and virtues are supposed to grow there and you've got to be an authoritative gatekeeper. He's given you authority. And I hope that this summer, 
that you're inspired like never before to take the sovereignty that he's given to you and to look at Jesus and say, I want to go on this journey of discipleship. I want to accept the invitation. Help me to understand the commands. Help me to walk in your pathways so that those virtues can define who I am. Imagine if God was right up here on this platform, right here. Just standing right here, however you want to envision God to be. There's going to come a day when we're in a crowd just like this. And it's going to be our turn. I don't know if it's going to look like this, but this is how I imagine it. And it's going to be my turn to stand there, right before the creator of the universe. And you know who's going to be standing there with me? It's Jesus. And you know what I think he's going to say? Can you tell us apart, Father? Can you tell which one is Jesus and which one isn't? Right, that, that God has the ability to see inside of us. And I think in that moment, what Jesus is trying to help us to understand now is we're not ever going to look just like him, but maybe we could confuse God just a little bit. You with me? Maybe something in, in that moment, God says, you look like my son. The Bible uses many different phrases to describe that moment. One of them is well done, my good and faithful servant. But the, the one I like, you look like Jesus. Can I just tell you, that's my greatest desire in my life for me. And that's my greatest desire in my life for you. That when it's your turn to stand, you're going to look a lot like the person that died for you. Stand with me. Father, I pray that this would be the launch of something for our church. I pray that this would be the beginning of something for people in our church. That, that, that people, when they looked at that list of pathways and they thought, I'm going to have a whole lot of X's in the red, that by the end of the summer, there's just going to be green and yellow. For, for people that looked at that list of virtues and have thought, I'm not sure any of those words were ever going to describe who I am. By the end of the summer, somebody's going to walk up to them. Maybe one of their children, maybe their spouse, maybe a neighbor or a co-worker, and they're going to actually use one of those virtues to describe them in a moment of affirmation. Father, may this Saturday in June mark a moment in time where we're rolling up our spiritual sleeves and we get busy doing the spiritual activities that we're desperate for to mature the character of our soul. In Christ's name, come on and everybody said, amen. Let's worship together. Oh
summer it's it's a little bit heavy but if you're looking for something to challenge you this is by Jean Guillon it's called experiencing the depth of Jesus Christ and one of the things she talks about in this book that is that as as Christians we have a tendency to read the Bible as as a task that we're just trying to get through 